Wait, sorry, what is that one, James? How much wood could a woodcutter cut if a woodcutter could cut wood? That's supposed to be a woodchuck, I thought. It's a woodchuck. Wood yeah. oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> it's that different is... in England. <laughs> what is a no, woodchuck? Yeah. The answer is it's a groundhog, a large, belonging to a group of large ground squirrels known as marmots. First scientifically described by, by Carl Linnaeus. Woodchuck. There you go. Hello, world, and welcome to episode three of the Pink Bike Podcast. Today is all about the tech. We're going to talk about Pond Beaver, our virtual trade show coverage. We're going to talk about new suspension from Fox and RockShox. I have both my bosses here, Brian Park and Mike Casimer. And to talk about suspension, we also have our latest addition to the editorial team, Dan Roberts, an actual engineer, a real-life engineer. But first, we're going to cover the news with James Smurthwaite. Yeah, unfortunately, we're starting with more uh, coronavirus again. Uh, so the UCI gave us a bit of an update on what's happening on their end. They've now cancelled 30% of the international calendar. That's 650 events. And they're refunding every organiser um, their calendar fees. So it's a pretty significant loss of earnings on their part. Um, we give them a... Well, they get a lot of shit in our comments section, sometimes deservedly, but... To me, they're you know a big part of the reason why the XC and downhill World Cups are as good as they are at the moment, and we need them when racing gets going again. So, hoping for the best for those guys. Yeah, it's definitely not the time to be dancing on anyone's graves. Um, you know, the the leadership. I think they're going to get some flack that that there's some leaderships only taken pay cuts and haven't furloughed themselves, but they're you know they're also responsible for getting racing going again when when possible. Hopefully they are the right people to make that happen when we can. So we did actually see some news on the doping front as well, didn't we, James, with German racer Helen Grobert banned for four years. Uh, What's going on with doping controls at this time? Like no one's racing. So are there doping controls? What's happening? Yeah, it seems a bit up in the air at the moment. So the CADF, uh, who are kind of separate body from the UCI, manage that on cycling things and they're going off wider guidelines um, which is basically they're trying to test as much as possible, but with lockdowns and quarantines, they, they can't get to the races. So testing is, is definitely going to be down at the moment. I know they're going to try and fix that afterwards by looking at biological passports and by sort of increasing testing when they can. Uh, but for now, yeah, it seems like uh, there's, there's not so much testing going on as, as maybe we would like. It seems like it would be a good time to dope if one was a doper, doesn't it? I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> Me neither. But, you know, with limited testing going on, I mean, if you were going to go around the rules, it wouldn't be a terrible time, unfortunately, to do it. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. And on that note, as you already mentioned, we saw Helen Grobert, uh, Helen Grobert's band announced. So Helen Grobert, you may not be too familiar with her. Um, she had a test in November 2017, a pretty routine test. She came fourth at the first race of 2018 in Stellenbosch and then shortly after that um, announced her retirement for sort of mysterious quote-unquote health reasons. I think we now know the reason for that is this positive testosterone uh, test. She, you know, potentially could be back racing March 2022, but given she's missed four years of the best racing years of her life, I think that's probably the last we'll see of her. Um, so that's five mountain bikers in 18 months now that have had some sort of doping infringement. It seems like mountain biking is far from immune from, from this sort of cheating. Do we know why um, why it took so long to for this to come out about Helen? Not in that specific instance, but I mean, it's no different to the cases we saw in Enduro where the tests were done at Orlog and we didn't hear about the positive results officially from the UCI until nearly a year later. And... Uh, who knows if we would have heard them on that timeline if we hadn't broken that story. Well, yeah, very true. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, wild, wild times. I'm sure that there are people looking to skirt the rules, uh, and that sucks. But WADA and, and the CADF are up against it. Like, what can you do? You can't endanger people by visiting them all the time and collecting their urine. Like, that seems like a really non-coronavirus-friendly thing to do. It's not a good time to be playing with anybody's urine right now. Definitely. <laughs> Well, some better XC news then. Um, Yolanda Neff seems to have made a really strong recovery from her 
crash earlier in the year. Um, she was riding in Pisgah and ruptured her spleen, had a partially collapsed lung, some broken li- ribs, really serious stuff. Kaz, you've had a collapsed lung yourself. Can you? Yeah, sort of I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend it. It usually comes from a big impact, which is the same impact that would rupture your spleen. So, I mean, overall, especially for an athlete trying to get your lung capacity back, you kind of feel like you can't breathe and they make you blow into this thing and check your lung capacity. But um, Kaz, yeah, I mean. Does it, does it feel like getting the wind knocked out of you? What does it feel like? Like forever getting the wind knocked out of you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but usually like if you do horrible. collapse a lung and all these other injuries, there's more going on. Like you're just battered and bruised. So just getting to feel normal again takes a while. So yeah, it's impressive how quickly she's been able to recover. And uh, I mean, I guess there's never a good time to get hurt, but for her, she, everyone, no one else is racing. So she didn't really miss as much as she would have in the normal, the normal world. And yeah, she didn't definitely. apparently make a full recovery from that, James, or what's the deal? Yeah, it seems that she's made a great recovery. Like she even had a sort of emergency surgery that was meant to kill off her spleen, but her spleen survived that. It seems to be working normally. So yeah, she's uh, she's probably going to be coming back as, as strong as she ever was. Oh man, I am ignorant here. Do you need a spleen? That seems like an th- important thing. What does it even do? No, it doesn't. You don't need a spleen. I feel like a spleen is what processes all the monster I drink, maybe. Is that <laughs> you what does it? You might <laughs> I need think I need mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I see we're off to a good start. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's a great video um, documenting the, the crash and, and Yolanda's immediate recovery on Peak Bike. So head over and, and watch that if you've not caught up with that. It's a really good watch. Um, so speaking of some other video stuff, our own series, The Privateer, uh, where we gave an amateur racer full factory support and full enduro, where we taught a novice rider some enduro skills with pro coaches. Uh, they're both now available on Amazon Prime TV. Um, so you can still watch them for free on YouTube, but it's cool to see them on another big platform, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then also, while we're on videos, uh, we, we recently found out, we posted uh, we posted a throwback Thursday last week that was Ride to the Hills. We post it like probably once a year. It's a good throwback. We found out that James hasn't watched it. I mean, there's just, so, there's just so many videos. James, you have, no, there aren't so many videos. <laughs> there are a ton of edits lately for the past five years, and there are a bunch of amazing videos from many years prior, including Ride to the Hills that you have to watch for work now. Yep, it's your, it's your task. I think the oldest. I'm never going to quiz you about it. <laughs> the oldest <laughs> film I've seen is is Seasons 2008. And I, I, yeah, never gone further back than that. Oh yeah, you need to go a lot deeper. I mean, how old were you? I guess that's kind of the, how old were you in 2003? 2003, uh, 11. Yeah. Okay. So you have a small excuse, but still, you need to Barely. go and learn some history. Yeah. Barely. You have a whole North Shore Extreme series to watch. You've got. Oh, what else do you have to watch? You have to watch all of the Drop In TV episodes. No, the only thing he needs to watch is Vanderham. Off those hips, above how sound, and then Dave Watson out of that corner. Yes, you guys but then you got to watch Wade too. You can't miss Wade Simmons episode, a segment in that. You have to watch. Yeah, that's pretty twice. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, the Chan Center gap is so good. Are these I guess movies I, as amazing as we remember them? Though maybe we should go back and rewatch them all. I did watch it the other day. It. Yeah, it was it was seventy five percent as good as I remembered, but still very good. So one of my favorite moments from last year was. During our field test, we watched um, a boatload of old mountain bike videos with with uh, Taj Mihalic, the BMX legend, and like he'd never seen, you know, he was familiar with old school BMX videos, and for him to watch all these old school mountain bike videos, it was just like, what even is this sport? It's so weird. Yeah, he definitely did sound a little confused and amused. <laughs> well, I mean, there's like guys like a slow mo throwing the horns a lot, and like just the goofy old outfits. I mean, there was mountain boarding in one of them, wasn't there? <laughs> in yeah. several yeah, of the mountain boarding. Yeah, uh-huh. I sort of wanted to do it back then, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Oh, I, I was into mountain boarding for mountain biking. It was my gateway drug. Are you serious? <laughs> really? Wait, you had yeah, a mountain board? Yeah. I what? still got it. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, Lord. Oh. Next yeah. episode, it's all about James on his mountain board. We're going mountain boarding. <laughs> yeah. I even bought, uh, like, Mountain Boarding UK, the magazine. That's that's amazing yeah i want to see pictures and video of this (laughs) like off-road mountain boarding like off-road yeah yeah Yeah, terrorizing sheep in the lake district it was (laughs) yeah it was was a time it was a time (laughs) i hope you have photos of this time james (laughs) Uh, we'll see everybody comes to the next podcast with one embarrassing photo (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. It seems yeah. fair. Yeah. But there's Photos so translate many. really well over audio. Oh, yeah. So I haven't seen Ride to the Hills, but I tell you what I did watch this week was In the Hills Gang and their 10-minute-long free ride edit. For me, it was like big jumps, big tricks, desert lines, electric wizard, like pretty cool stuff. Anyone else watch that? Yeah, it's good. It just reminds me of like how... I mean, every springtime when I lived in Colorado, we go out to Utah in the desert and just go goof around for a week and just, yeah, have a good time on the bikes. And that one's pretty fun. Looks like they had some good lines and makes you want to go to the desert. I didn't catch that one. There are so many to watch. So many. You should you should watch right? that one. <laughs> I'll check it out. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like a couple of the videos this week have gone under the radar. Just it's it's a weird time to be thinking about videos with you know, Dylan Stark's edits and that, uh, that William Robert has like his first big edit on Norco. Bob Robert. Yeah. Billy Bob. <laughs> French Bob Robert. I just want to put that out. He's French. His name is Bob Robert. It's good. Well, it's not Bob Robert. It's William Robert. So it'd be, it'd be yeah, Bill, Bill Robert. Bill yeah, Robert. Billy yeah. Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Or Willie Robert. Either way, that guy's good on a bike. Yeah. For sure. I thought that was maybe like almost Seminook-esque in terms of style and, and shooting. I thought it was pretty cool. Plus, he's wearing an all-white kit, so that's how you know you're a pro if you have all-white clothes on. Yeah, and go mountain biking in the dirt. I just I like his style, man. It's not it's not the you know the normal things we see out of Europe in terms of like you what either the get, normal things we see out of Europe. Well, you get the UK like jib kids and the people that hit like the same muddy rut in every video. There's uh, obviously really fast downhill racers that smoke. Clearly, you know that's clearly a a good European stereotype. You got the uh what were they called the, the the slow guys that just creep down the really steep stuff um the vert riders the vert riders there you go yeah and what was the thing dan roberts was saying the i ride nice not fast <laughs> uh you got fidget spinner kids uh just doing all the tricks pressing you know mashing the buttons on their video game controllers um but yeah dan or uh william roberts is like i don't know it's different Let's talk some tech then. Virginia Tech University announced their latest helmet rankings. These are sort of the biggest independent helmet safety tests in cycling, really. Uh, so number one spot went to the Fox drop frame. And then the next two best mountain bike helmets were the Bontrager Mali Rally MIPS and the Troili uh, A2 MIPS. Some of the things which I picked out I thought were quite important. Uh, MIPS took the top seven spots. And there were only three non-MIPS helmets in the top 30. Uh, and then there were nine helmets under $100 that earned five stars, uh, which is their, their highest rating. So it's, it's kind of good to see that you don't have to pay a premium for that level of protection. I feel like this is a, a really complicated subject, helmet testing. Like, are there standards? What are they doing? How are they testing this thing? How does it relate yeah. to real world stuff? Yeah, and if you look on, Virginia Tech is really transparent with their testing methodology, so you can go on their site and see what they're doing. And it's worth noting that this isn't like a certification process. It's kind of their way of taking helmets that already exist and running them through their testing and give them their own ranking. So they're independent um, from like the CPSC or ASTM or any of the other certification things that exist out there. So all the helmets that you would go buy at a bike shop, they're already certified. They meet the basic safety standards. But Virginia, Tech's, Virginia Tech is taking things a little step further and running them through their own thing uh, in order to measure partially uh, rotational impact. So they're the way that they test is a little different than your normal, uh, just drop a helmet onto a flat surface test or onto a anvil shaped surface. I think we're all, everybody's on the same page that helmet testing is not where we'd like it to be. It's so hard to recreate real world conditions. And a lot of the testing that's done with the current standards is done with sort of commuting in mind. You know, a, a lot of the safety data that people base where they're putting the padding and helmets, etc., comes from commuting even. And so we really have a long way to go to get to where we can look at a, at a safety rating and be like, oh, yep, that's that's the one for the type of riding I do for with, you know, with real certainty. But it's cool to see Virginia Tech like they're kind of sticking their neck out with the way they're doing all this. And it is, I think, a much better test than a lot of what happens in the certification world. Yeah, exactly. I think in the future, when the next round of certifications comes through, a lot of that will look similar to what Virginia Tech is doing. It just takes a while to get, there's just so many government agencies and it's a lot of red tape and things. I don't even understand how it all works that are that need to happen before the there'll be a new standard, basically, for all helmets. Okay, so we're going to go from helmet tech to even more tech with our Pond Beaver coverage. And what the hell is Pond Beaver? Basically, with Corona happening right now, there are, of course, 
no gatherings, which rules out trade shows. So that means no Sea Otter trade show. That means no Taipei cycle. Uh, We'll see about Eurobike in the future. But in the meantime, we put together our own virtual trade show. It's called Pond Beaver, sort of tongue in cheek. And we had manufacturers send us a whole load of new gear, new forks, new shocks, new wheels, new drivetrains, all sorts of new stuff. Uh, so to talk about that today, I still have Casimir and Brian Park here, but we also have our latest tech editor, Dan Roberts, who is an actual engineer. Hi, Dan. Hello, everybody. I do think we need to get Dan an armchair so he can also be our armchair engineer. Just Once these the go comments. to videos, he could just sit in the armchair and engineer from the armchair from afar. I'm currently in a very luscious like sofa, so it's not far off. Before we get to the new suspension, we're going to talk about some new wheels. Envy has some US-made wheels. They cost $1,600. Envy's wheels used to cost, I mean, they were somewhere around $3,000, those US-made wheels when they first came out. Casimir, you've been riding these things. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good step for Envy. Like you said, they've kind of used to be known for being really expensive, if not the most expensive carbon wheels that you would see um, on the market. And now they're still made in the U.S., but they've made some good changes. Uh, for one thing that I'm personally a big fan of, the nipples are accessible without taking the tire off. Uh, before, the nipples used to be inside. So if you wanted to true the wheel, replace the spoke, you had to pull everything apart. So these ones kind of a more uh, traditional rim design where you, you can access the nipples without doing any of that. Um, they're also a pretty reasonable weight for what we're looking at. It's like their enduro-oriented all-mountain kind of wheel set, 1,883 grams. And that price, $1,600, obviously not cheap. You know, there are cheaper carbon wheels out there. But again, made in the U.S., comes with Industry 9 uh, 101 hub, so also made in the U.S., so full U.S.-made wheel set for that price. I do think it's a step in the right direction. I've got a few rides on them, and they they feel nice so far. You know, durability is going to be another thing. And we've had some mixed experiences with them in the past again. So hopefully these things hold up. But, um, yeah, I like the direction that they're going. Do you have them on a trail bike or an enduro bike? What, What are they for? Yeah, like I said, they're kind of for, they, they run the gamut, basically. They say you can go on anything from like a 110 millimeter bike to 180 millimeter bike. That's kind of how they segment the way, uh, where their wheels are intended for. So basically anything short of a downhill bike is what these are meant for. So right now they're on a trail bike, but they'll see action on different bikes as the months go on. How's the, um, how's the compliance? Yeah, everyone loves to talk about compliance. I mean, they do feel comfortable. They haven't rattled my hands or I don't feel any, you know, unwanted feedback. But again, conditions have been pretty perfect here with a lot of soft, loamy trails. So probably not the ideal compliance uh, judging conditions. But yeah, so far they're nice and comfortable. And a bit over 1,800 grams. They're not they're not mm-hmm. super lightweight wheels. Yeah, not crazy light. I think they kind of fall in where you're, uh, it seems like a lot of wheels in this category are coming in at. 1770 to like 1880 seems to be the number that, companies are targeting but i think it's a, a cool step from them and we'll i mean they could make there. they could make them lighter i'm sure but you know dan you had a you had some issues with some very lightweight carbon wheels recently a little bit yeah in, in although it turns wheels. out the rims were actually not that light after one of the pink black dudes um figured out the rim weight from like subtracting all the nipples and the spokes how, and how much did it weigh the rim there's like five i'm gonna quote this wrong now five hundred and twenty around i'd have to go and look back so so i just, I just wrote something about some upcoming lightweight carbon wheels and they're designed to be lighter than the wheels that you had dan that broke but i want to say the rims weighed 340 grams or something like that why why would anybody dan as an engineer i'm asking you why would anybody use a 500 and something gram carbon rim you've got more material evidently these lightweight rims are not really up to scratch probably yeah but my point is why wouldn't you just get an aluminum wheel set at that price that weighs the same the rim isn't any really heavier uh yeah if you bring in aluminium into that then that's a whole different topic and conversation i think as to like where you want to have what material you want to have at the outside of your wheel and stuff if you just stick to carbon fiber then that would be a different discussion yeah i don't know it just seems like why use a carbon rim that weighs as much as an aluminum rim yeah i mean i'd say for a lot of people what's become appealing is the li- the lifetime warranty a lot of these companies have um that's kind of been if you have carbon wheels on the market you almost have to have a lifetime warranty or some kind of super good guarantee so for some people that would traditionally go through three or four at least rims a season it could potentially make some of the higher costs go away like i'm happy at riding aluminum or carbon wheels but i can see the you know why some people would want to go towards that mm-hmm. nicer carbon wheel 
And those Envy wheels, those have a lifetime warranty, the new ones as well? Yeah, it's a little, it's a lifetime for the first owner. Basically, if anything happens to it, they'll cover you. So they have a five-year manufacturing defect warranty, but then they have this other kind of crash replacement sort of program, but it's very generous. So you could melt it with your exhaust pipe and they'll still replace it. Yeah, I have seen that before. Yeah. I remember when those lifetime warranty things first came out, I think, I want to say it was Easton with those original Havoc carbon wheels, maybe. And people were amazed that no matter what they could do, if they drove over the wheels, they'd get replaced. And I think, I mean, yeah, nowadays it's, you need to have that if you're offering carbon wheels that are that expensive. But that just gets built into the cost of the wheel though, right? The, the thing Don't doesn't ruin happen it for me, for... Brian. Don't ruin <laughs> it. It's just like free shipping. It's not actually free, Lee. No. Yeah. Every, we just collectively pay for it. You mean, yeah. are but you I mean, telling me it's... that the garbage bags that are free at the grocery store aren't really free? You mean I'm paying for those? <laughs> you're getting free. I don't even know what you're doing at the gar- grocery store. <laughs> Move on from that. <laughs> but either way, we'll see how these wheels hold up. I do think it's a good step in the right direction from Envy. Make them more accessible to more people. The US Made story is pretty cool. And if they hold up, it'd be good. So we're going to move from some pretty pricey wheels to a drivetrain that's impressively priced, 167 bucks for the MicroShift Advent X drivetrain. Dan Sapp has been riding it. Uh, he seems impressed so far. This is exactly what we've been we're asking for in the first episode when we're talking about like how can product managers bring down the prices of the sort of value price bikes without sac like what are we willing to sacrifice and i think everybody said we're willing to sacrifice some gears um you know re- remove some complexity and it seems like microshift's doing that yeah, it's it 10 is a 10 speed drivetrain as well i didn't mention that at first but fewer gears but it has uh, the biggest cog is a 48 it's an 11 to 48 spread 10 speed and the cassette is impressive too it's a 65 dollar cassette that's a few grams lighter than an xt cassette it could be a good option for a lot of people like we we're saying if it shows up on more you know budget price bikes and keeps the price down and gives you that range because that's really been before you had to sacrifice some range and if you're a, you know, even a beginner rider just getting into the sport and you have this little tiny cassette without the range that these more expensive bikes have it's probably kind of frustrating so this one good range good price and again dan's got it for longer term testing so we'll see but so far he's been impressed I mean, it's, it sounds promising, but is it is it a real thing? When we see all these, we just got back from the field trip and all these bikes had SRAM, SX, and NX drivetrains on them, largely because they're specced with SRAM suspension and brakes and all that stuff. So can MicroShift get in there? Yeah, I mean, they have got an uphill battle. Mountain bike brands, when they're specking their brakes and their drivetrain and stuff, they're trying to get as much consolidated with individual brands as possible so that you can get a volume discount. So yeah, MicroShift is going to have to work pretty hard and offer some very good pricing to OE spec to kind of crack that door open. So the other thing we're actually seeing is on the protection front, a ton of new knee pads from Raceface, Pearl Izumi, TLD, G-Form, uh, POC. POC has some new kids knee pads as well too. Brian, I know you're always, the gear, the knee pads thing is a big one for you. Brian, Safety. Yeah. Safety. There's a history yep, of some fairly bad injuries. So he's big on the safety. Have you tried any of these pads, Brian? Or what would catch your eye? No, uh, I do. I want new knee pads. I like the, I like the POC knee pads I have. Um, and when I tomahawked last year, I did not hurt my knees, just my arm. <laughs> you hurt your arm yeah. enough to count as everything now, I think. Yeah, that's fair. I figure I'm done. I, I mean, it's the first bad break I've had in 20 years of mountain biking so i'll take it i guess i had it coming and it, honestly like in this conversation kaz has had a worse crash than me well yeah in, like, i ride more than you that's true yeah it's true it's just a numbers game <laughs> you ride more you'll crash more yeah but you all you've broken your back three times now yeah casimir happens sometimes Stop. the ground's hard the ground Jesus, is hard what are you doing <laughs> only two of them were biking one is skiing so it's different yeah, you can divide so it up behind none of these guys are smooth operators like me i don't need to wear knee pads just yeah uh-huh. controlled <laughs> precision you're always good yeah i do like i like levy you've got a good scale of like is it a knee pad ride or not a knee pad ride and that's a good way to classify rides yeah. i yeah, wear knee pads yeah, exactly. on every ride yeah i definitely don't but i've definitely paid the price for that i mean last year i sat out for for months because i wasn't wearing knee pads on a ride where i should i definitely should have been but in my mind there's a huge problem with knee pads. And the problem is, is that they all are fucking terrible to pedal in. They're terrible. It's Have you brutal. tried any of these new ones? Like those the new ones Pearl that, Dumi I've, ones? Not the ones that out. have just come out. I do have 
four sets of pads in a in my cabinet that are all terrible except for the six six ones that sort of look G for me a little bit. But I feel yeah. like I look European, which I'm not a big fan of. <laughs> Dan, respond. Uh, I don't know. I spent a lot of time in New Zealand, so they just don't ride with any knee pads, and I think it caught them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you they are full on downhill knee pads. Yeah. Now is it? Now is the time to be wearing the pads, people. Of course, wear all your pads right now. I mean, even I'm wearing my knee pads right now. Fair. Yeah. I don't know. Of I the know. ones that, of the ones that I saw in in um in Pond Beaver this time around, I think those race face are looking pretty good. Just I don't know. I'm I am I guess old. I'm gonna be like full stormtrooper, like like full like rad dad style in the bike park, just fully armored up <laughs> with your like pressure suit, but. I don't know. The more I do think that having a, a hard shell makes more and more sense. Yes. I mean, the, the benefits of a hard shell, if you fall, it should slide better over the ground. Yeah. But like in the bike park, I've got pants on, so it doesn't matter. Like I just, I don't know. It's a, but the nice thing is there are a lot of pads out there that actually do protect you if you fall. Like they use D3O or some kind of other viscoelastic material. Or before these companies were coming out with their, there's a brand that called it their Enduro knee pad, but it was just foam. It was one of your favorites, Levy, for a bit. But yeah, <laughs> it was foam. I, I it was like, pretend. I like, like that it one. It was it didn't protect me, but when I landed on my knees, all the bits got smashed and the so-called knee pads would just hold the pieces there for me to <laughs> yeah. put them back together later. It yeah. was great. So, I didn't lose any pieces of my knee. Yeah. So now it's good to see there's more of these with an actual uh, decent amount of padding in there that will protect you from a, you know, a slam. It still still hurts, but it helps. And they're paddleable, which is nice too. Uh, the other new thing is we saw some new high volume tires from Maxis meant for more trail riding, cross-country riding. What do you think of those, Cass? Yeah, and it, even less than trail, I'd say. These are kind of almost strictly cross-country, like their recon race, super low-profile tread pattern. Um, but the cool thing is they're a 2.4-inch width. So, you know, back in the day, cross-country riding meant you're basically on a road bike-looking tire, no tread, super narrow. But in the last few years, we've seen wider rims emerge, and then the riders are running lower pressures and wider tires. So kind of what we've been doing on the, you know, trail on mountain side of things, but it, now the cross country guys are getting into it too. So these are pretty light tires, uh, but with a, you know, bigger volume. But that also really reflects the, uh, the changes that are happening in XC racing as well. This isn't, um, and just what we come to expect from XC or XC ish bikes. This isn't just happening in a, in a vacuum. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we see dropper posts now and, and that's another emerging thing. And of course have gotten a little bit more technical. So you can't get away with the tires that you used to run before. So related, I have the new Kona Hey Hey that has recons on it. It's, I think it's going to be released by the time this podcast comes out. I think it's yeah, okay it that be, I yeah. talk about it. It has it has recons on it, front and back, 2.25. And when I was riding the bike, I mean, a lot of my thoughts came down to, man, this bike would be so much better with 2.4 recons, just a higher volume, more forgiving tire. And I think obviously Maxis and a lot of other people are feeling the same. We're seeing cross country go that way. I, yeah. I will say the one thing I'm scared of is with these nice high volume tires that, you know, their side profile, they're going to look beefy. Um, you know, obviously the tread is very XC-ish, but what I hope we don't see is people specking we're brand specking these tires to lower the showroom weight yeah, for a bike I, that needs more. Like I don't want to see 130 bikes with a 66 or 65 degree head tube angle getting these. So yeah, that's seven, think you will. I feel like, gram. I feel like product managers have gotten smart enough by now. It's rare that you see, like luckily in the last couple of years, most bikes are coming with proper tires where it's not, that game doesn't get played as much. I think they, they know, but if it happens, we'll complain about it. But in the meantime, <laughs> yeah. these do seem like they'd be cool for a, you know, a cross country bike. They're 720 grams or so super light and being wider. Yeah. I don't see any downsides really. Although a downside, actually, I might as well mention one downside. They might not fit your old school cross country race bike. So if you got a race bike, like, Oh, I want to put these new tires on it. You're going to run into some frame clearance issue issues potentially. I think that's definitely something that moving on from what Brian said is there is an evolution of XC bikes as well as in upcoming developments where riders want a bit more travel 120 fatter tire clearance and stuff like that and more and more riders are pushing brands for it and more more brands in the future will actually come out with bikes with bigger clearance a bit more travel a bit more rowdy for what xc is right now which is actually quite close to what a lot of normal biking is as well so that's what yeah i think we're going to see a bit of a transmission transition period as well too as these xc bikes get more and more capable I've got a Mondraker 
podium our dual country or down country thing in the shop dual right country. now. Dual country. Dual country. Even better. Country. Country. Next. Don't start. You wreck the secret. You wreck the secret. <laughs> that's the next. That's the next bike. Bikes back coming. Dual country. I think that's where you where you bolted Fox Forty onto the front of your yeah. down country bike, right? Exactly. No, that's just where exactly. you ride in America. Then you pedal over to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say there's not much dual country going on at the moment. But. This this Mondraker is meant to be a cross country race bike, and it has a long front end. It's relatively slack, and I I get going fast on it, and I could just picture myself having some like super XC race tires, and it being sketchy as hell. So we're seeing these bikes get better, and we're going to see gear get better slowly. But uh, which brings us to the new Sid. 35 millimeter upper tubes for a cross country fork. So the old chassis used 32 millimeter upper tubes and the one before that was 28. And I mean, I've been riding this fork. I've got it on the front of that Mondraker. I've had it for a couple months now. It's been impressive. It's a, it's another, you know, another example is evolution across country where it's getting, you can do more on cross country bikes besides just go on a little short track with mellow terrain. You can push them a little bit further, you know, and they're still relatively light, which is which is cool because as much as everybody likes to say weight doesn't matter, there is something fun about getting on a lightweight short travel bike and just going as fast as possible. Oh, and it could make you feel like a superhuman good. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the new Sid, I think it's a little over 1500 grams in the, that's the larger 35 millimeter upper tubes. They still do an even lighter one. Uh, but the thing, I don't want to call it a mini pike, but I'm impressed so far. That's for sure. They stripped down as much as they could on that. And when you look at the damper, it's the tiny, it looks like a pen inside of there, but somehow it works. And they kind of took away some adjustments, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I got a good solid rod on it too. And it's pretty crazy what they did with it. Do you guys think that it'll get specced on uh, sort of slightly longer bikes as well? Or where, where's that cutoff? Yeah. Well, I think that's going to be interesting. So that Hey Hey that I have here, it's got a 120 millimeter pike on it. Definitely could have used a 120 millimeter SID, but the SID... When you say when you say longer travel bikes, it's no longer than 120 millimeters. That's the only travel that it comes in. So yeah. it's a chassis it's dedicated for that. The stanchion tubes aren't long enough to to up travel it. And I think they know. I mean, that's how they're positioned. They know, and there is a limit too. You can't be, you know, longer stanchions and more travel on that fork. It probably would stop feeling as good as it does in the 120 or 20 setting. So I think for bikes with 120 millimeters rear travel or less, it's a great option. So the SID isn't the only fork that got bigger. Fox also dropped a whole load of new forks, including the 38. Guess what size upper tubes it uses? 38 millimeters. Kaz, you've been on this thing for a while? Yeah. Uh, well, not a while. It just showed up a couple weeks ago. So I've got, at this point, maybe four rides on it. But again, bigger, burlier than anything they've made before. And we kind of saw teasers of it. Yes. Levy. Does it feel <laughs> two millimeters better? I, I have to ask right away. <laughs> Two, two millimeters better. No, it yeah. does feel stiffer than the 36, but I'd never had complaints about the 36 stiffness, but I think we're seeing another, you know, bikes have gotten, we got all these long travel 29ers out there. People are, I don't know how many people are buying downhill bikes, but they want their one bike to do everything. So we're kind of seeing a reemergence of what we used to call free ride bikes. Now I don't know what you call them, but, um, this kind of slots right into that category. So big and tough and can do whatever you want with it. Does it feel like a bigger 36? Yeah, but they've got some new things too. I, it does. I mean, if you've ridden the 36 before and you rode that, you'd notice, I think you could notice the stiffness. I need to do some actual back-to-back -to, -back to see, but it does feel, even just looking down, it looks bigger. Like when I hop back on a 36 or a Lyric and you look down it, it's funny that that little bit makes it looks, looks those, makes those forks look smaller, mm -hmm. which is just, I don't know how much that is mental, but yeah. Let's go actually measure the stiffness. Oh, the engineer just put it on a here bring in facts, get lost, yeah. engineer. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I'll get back in my cage. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think you could like, they have their numbers, but we could definitely put it in a vice and hang some weights off it or something. Yeah. And, like, deflection. Simple. So yeah, that thing, so the upper tubes are two millimeters bigger, but that's not Fox's only trick. Is it Kaz? They've also done something clever with the steer tube. Yeah. The, uh, it's got an elliptical steer tube. So basically that means a little bit more material towards the bottom of it, uh, around that crown area. They're just, again, trying to beef that up and keep it nice and stiff. They also modified the arch. That was kind of the first thing people noticed when uh, spy shots or teasers were floating around. It's got a really rounded arch and it's actually tilted a little bit forward if you look at it from the side profile. And that's designed to provide clearance for head tubes. Um, so yeah, they did a lot of work to try to you know, make this thing as strong and stiff as possible. And these features are also on that 40 and the 36. You know, I didn't wasn't super in love with that, with that rounded arch look when I first saw it. But I actually, I don't know, I've come around. It looks tough. All the arch head tube interference issues that we were having. Thank God Fox has solved that problem. 
Well, they become more common with reduced offset forks. And then you e-bikes big... with those huge head tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it just makes room. Yeah, but yeah, I can't say I've had an issue with my head tube hitting the arch in a long ever. I, I've never had that problem. I wonder if it will if it would be something like the the new Gorilla Gravity where you've got all that adjustability built into the head tube. Yeah, you would look at that bike. Some of Evil's bikes. There are a few other brands out there that have kind of bigger, oversized head tubes that stick out further. So it just we also saw last year on the front of e-bikes that oversized steerer tube. So that might be something that Fox is thinking about in the future. Just for looks? You mean just for looks so that it matches up nicer? Well, this way they wouldn't have to make different lowers for their e-bike specific fork, you know, and now they have the clearance to clear that giant oversized head tube that everybody doesn't want to see. Yeah, so Kaz, there's been a bunch of changes internally as well too. So the Grip 2 damper, I know that's one of my faves and that's one of your faves, but they've actually updated that for 2021 as well. Yeah, so what it has now, it has VVC, which stands for variable valve control. Uh, So basically they had that before in the high-speed rebound circuit. Um, It's kind of like two little leaf springs that when you turn the dial, it adjusts the basically how stiff the shim stack is, to put it as simple as I can. In the past, that'd be something you would have to fully disassemble your fork or shock to to do that kind of uh, change, but now you can just do it with a dial. They have eight clicks of high speed now, which is down from the last one had like 22 clicks, but only maybe 11 of them worked. So hopefully it's a little bit simpler to kind of play with the different settings. And it's a, yeah, it's a pretty clever, clever kind of simple design that seems like yeah, it worked with the high speed rebound. So we'll see what it does for this. I had a hard time understanding that VVC thing when Fox explained it to me back in 2018. But from what I gather, it's instead of preloading shims, they're effectively changing the shim diameter like Dan, engineer Dan. No, not the da- yeah. Leverage. Uh, Go to yeah. Dan. He's no. They basically changed the fulcrum point. So instead of preloading a bunch of shims, which would lead to almost like a blow off style feeling, they're changing like the whole fulcrum point and the whole shim stack. If you take the like example of trying to like open a door, if you open a door from the door handle, it's super easy because you've got a big lever away from the the hinge. But if you're trying to like open or close the door from the hinge is super hard, right? You've changed your your point. Whereas if preloading a shim stack would just be like you put a friggin' fire extinguisher behind the door and you have to like run at the door to open it and then it blows open. So they've done something pretty clever actually. So the the way that I had to picture it to understand it is if you picture your shim as a as a frisbee and you put it on top of dead center over top of a fence pole that's really skinny. Obviously, that frisbee, you push it down from above, and it could flex a lot easier than if that pole was almost the diameter of the shim. And that's, from what I understand, Dan, that's kind of what they're doing? Exactly, yeah. There's a really nice video that Jordy put out recently, which disassembles it and shows the individual parts as well. So if you haven't quite got it figured out in your head, that's a really good video to go and watch as well. I was gonna say, it's definitely something that's easier if you can like visualize it. It's not quite the easiest thing to describe over audio. So if you do look in some pictures, it makes a little bit more sense. But either way, it, it, it's kind of a cool to see that feature go to the high-speed compression. And yeah, I'm excited to try it in the yeah. on the compression side. So is how big of a change is is it to the damper, to the Grip 2 damper? And like more specifically, I know nobody else cares about this, but why, why didn't they call it Grip 3? Why is it still Grip 2? Yeah. <laughs> not even well, Grip 2.1. Like, is it, is it just a fundamentally not that big a change? You've got to be in your yeah. bonnet about that, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> the damper's the same. Like, the, the architecture of the damper is the same. They've just switched the high-speed uh, compression on it. So the basic concept of the way the Grip 2 damper works is the same. It just has this different uh, compression design. Yeah, so again, this will be found on the 36, 38, and the 40. And other features include that pinch bolt design we didn't really talk about. That's another thing we kind of lost over. That floating axle. Yeah, so it has a floating axle. Basically, what that's designed to do is make sure that everything lines up perfectly so you don't get any resistance when you're compressing the fork. If if your wheel's in a little bit crooked, it can make the stanchions and bushings hit each other at an angle and add friction that you don't even notice is there. Yeah, totally. If you, you, You're relying on your hub manufacturer's tolerances to make your fork work properly. So it's, they, I mean, Dino Forks always had this and it was a really nice feature. So seeing that on little forks now is really good. And with the goal being to have those stanchion tubes and the lowers perfectly in line with everybody. <laughs> you guys are making me laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's because you keep saying stanction. Stanction that's is like the way I say it. Fucking get used to it. <laughs> it's like what little John would call it. I don't fucking like, care. Crunk juice and stanchions. <laughs> is that for your like your triple trees? Your Marinazochnies? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't. I I say Marzaki different too. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to ask my mom once how to pronounce that when I was a kid, and she told me Marzakachi. So it was a few years of saying that. So <laughs> nice. I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll learn one day. Another good thing was they also updated the 40 they've not shouted about it quite as much as the other folks which is fair enough because there's not much downhill going on at the moment but yeah they've also carried over all the same changes like in the 38 36 into the 40 as well so they've got new lowers with updated bleed valves the same design on the arch as well they've got the same updated grip 2 damper new air spring and also more options for offset adjustment between the two wheel sizes so individually each fork which is both now called the 40 no longer is one of 40 one of 49 now they're all 40 the 27 and the 29 have different offsets in the lowers but then they've each got a pair of crowns i think at least a pair of crowns that you can then change the offset to what you want as well it used to be that the old 49 had huge offset out at 58 and now you can bring it back with different crowns to adjust it on your bike to how you want Fox is selling those crowns separately as well, too. That I don't fully know. I've just seen the specs for the fork, so I do imagine it will be available, yeah. And and the manufacturers will have more flexibility in, in specking what they think is right for the design they're doing. Totally, yeah. I mean, they already made like the drop crown and the flat crown are available like aftermarket as well, so I imagine for sure, yeah, you can swap out the, the options on your offset crowns. So Dan, on top of front suspension, you've also been using some new rear shocks from Fox as well too. Exactly, yeah. So Fox also updated the back of the bike and they now have, carries the same name. So you have a DHX2, which is the coil sprung shock and a float X2, which is the air sprung shock. But after that, not a lot is really the same as the old shocks. From the outside, you can see a few little bits have changed. Some adjusters have changed place, but actually most of the magic has gone on internally. And they're even using a similar system to the forks, that VVC again, on the high-speed rebound and the shocks. So before they had kind of a preloaded shim system on the main piston, and that gave the shocks sometimes a bit of a rad characteristic all of their own, a bit like a stubborn teenager that would hold and then blow off at the end of it um but then now they've got shims on either side of the piston so that's opened up better control and it's also opened up their ability to offer like tunes so offering a different layout of shims for different bicycles and different spring rates and stuff so they've got more options to cater for more bicycles more riders and so on so if a rider had the old shock and they had the new shock what might they notice? What would they feel different on the trail, Dan, since you've been riding this thing a little bit? A little bit, yeah. I think Fox did a lot of work. Firstly, Fox did a lot of work on since they came out with the first X2 generation up until just now when they've released the new shocks to improve the performance of it. So they did a hell of a lot in there. But now it just feels more normal. It feels like you're in a usable range of your adjusters. It's not super hard to set up. You don't have to second guess the adjusters, what they're going to do. It just feels normal. It feels like you've got something to work with and something to play with and can start to just, for me at least, ride your bike a little more rather than just try and figure out what's going on on the shock end. I think we've got to start a series called like Pink Bike Does Terrible uh, Ad Copy. It's like, it's just it just feels normal. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It's kind of, I, it sounds boring, but it's a good accolade when you, oh, a good, um, sorry, uh, praise of a product, I think, when you can somewhat forget about it and just ride. And I feel like the new shock is just, is that it's, it's really, it just feels normal. It feels like it's got your back. It feels like you can move in either way on the adjusters and do what you want, really. Uh, you were mentioning you could adjust the shock stroke length externally a little bit easier now, right? You can just exactly, unfold yes. the piece at the bottom. So there's a little plate on the end of the kind of seal head. So it's just two little bolts. You can whip that off and add the spacers in to change the stroke length. So that's only really available on like metric shocks where you've got one eye to eye has got a few different shock strokes in it. But yeah, it basically you can do it without taking the shock apart, which you had to do on the old shock, which is a really cool feature as well. And does that change the eye to eye? And why would somebody want to change that? No, no, it keeps the eye to eye the same. And you just basically like the spacer takes up the space on the shaft. So you literally just cut off a bit of your travel. And it might simply be to do with lots of bikes now have different eye to eye shocks on them. 
uh, sorry, different stroke shocks on them with the same eye to eye. It's just how the options have come about with metric shocks. There's also a lot of bikes or some bikes out there where you can you can long shock them and unlock a little bonus travel and that kind of thing. I think like the stump jumper, there was a configuration you could do that. I, Kaz, I think that raw Madonna you're on, if if you run the different mm-hmm. um, if you run the different link, you get the same travel like the 65 link, you get the same travel, but you need a longer stroke shock or you can get more travel. I don't know. You, yeah, well, exactly. Or like even, yeah, it works. Or I know transition has their new scout that came out. It can come with, there's two different options. You can either have 140 or 150 millimeters of travel just by having a different stroke length, same eye to eye on that shock. So this sounds like more of a OE and original equipment tuning thing than something that a consumer would do, Dan. Well, I think if you've got the ability to do it really easily, then it opens it up to more people trying it. And it's really easy to do. So if it's that simple, then you could give it a go. Yeah, yeah, because there's some kind of hacks before where you would have to take your snippers and like snip the travel spacer off the shaft and not scratch the snaf- shaft or anything. So uh, this will make issues like that less likely, hopefully. Now, Fox isn't the only one with new suspension either. Uh, RockShox has a debonair upgrade kit and I think it's twenty five. Casimir, is it twenty five dollars? Yeah, it's twenty five dollars for the parts. If you just get a uh, basically a foot nut and seal head, or you can get the whole air spring for forty two dollars. So either way, less than fifty dollars. We talked about this earlier, Casimir, and you said for under fifty bucks, and this thing is worthwhile. Tell, tell me what it is and, and what it changes. Yeah. So basically, if you have a a lyric, a pike, a revelation, or a yari, um, kind of any of those ones, and you notice that it sinks into its travel a little bit too easily in the initial part of the stroke. So basically that first five to 15 millimeters, the the previous generation just wanted to sit down into that, even when no weight was on the bike. So basically you'd switch this out, you switch out the air spring, which doesn't take very long, uh, maybe a half an hour or so. And then it'll sit a little bit higher and just kind of, it makes it easier to set up the bike. Your sag numbers, your sag numbers are more accurate. Um, and it feels better on the trail as well. Uh, it's a noticeable, it's hard. noticeable change yeah. on the trail. It is. Yeah. It's a little bit harder to to put into words, but you just feel like you're riding a little bit higher and it kind of feels similar to as if you're running more air pressure, but you're not losing, you're not, it's not as harsh as if you just put more air into your current fork. So you're getting a lower leg service, a fork that feels better. I think it's a win. Yeah. I got the impression that you thought it was well worth the money and time involved in this one. Exactly. It did seem like, like, uh, some people got all fired up in the comments about how rock it should be a recall and they should be replacing these for free and this and that but i'm not i don't see it that way like that original fork felt great i had a lyric last year and it was awesome and you know in hindsight i can see what you're talking about when you reviewed that bike and you said it did have a little little dead spot at the beginning of the travel there but yeah it is a great fork and like i think we all want brands to keep trying like you know evolving their product um it's the fork that somebody owns isn't worse today than it was yesterday like after this got launched it doesn't like suddenly made their fork worse and it's an easy quick upgrade if you do have that issue you want to yeah exactly it. yeah if you like your current fork it's not you're not going to stop liking it all of a sudden and this one it just makes it a little bit better so it's cool i mean that's a cool thing too is that it's backwards compatible mm-hmm. it's not some new thing it's something you can get pop in your fork and you're like oh this feels better than i my fork felt before and i already liked my fork before so that's the that's bigger what, thing that's what we should be encouraging brands to do more of not not being like you know there's lots of reasons to to be frustrated at the pace of of uh change in the bike industry but this seems like a good thing to me yeah and it's a simple thing too i didn't really explain even what this thing does but basically you just move the position of the of the seal head in relation to this little dimple that's inside your your fork stanchion and that dimple allows the air to travel from your positive chamber to the negative chamber equalizes everything out so now they put the seal head right exactly in line with that dimple um, and that basically just gets rid of that initial dead spot where it felt like the fork was trying to kind of suck down into itself yeah, that's actually on the new SID as well, too, and and it is noticeable for sure. It does sit at the top of a travel more. But we have bigger things to talk about than new air springs, don't we? Literally. There literally. is. Yeah. Yeah, there is a new fork that sure looks a lot like the Totem. So a few days ago, RockShox used Mitch Ropolato's Instagram to show the public their first pictures of a new long travel single crown fork that would be... I guess a direct competitor Fox is 38. I think there's no surprise there that uh, I would assume, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going conspiracy land here, but I would assume that 
you know, Fox was having a huge, a huge week launching their entire 2021 product lineup and RockShox uh, made a calculated decision to make sure that they were still in the story, um, you know, letting OEs and people, the public know that they've got new stuff coming too with that, with a coordinated, you know, a well-planned leak. We don't, we, I know we, we do not have a full review tomorrow. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> what, Levy? We, oh, do you, we, have you secretly been on that's, that's what I was going to say is first full review tomorrow. Stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> no, we actually, we don't know anything about this thing except that it's very unlikely that it's going to be called a totem. Unfortunately, I would love it to be called a totem, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I'm going to advocate for notum. The notum, yeah. The notum. <laughs> that makes sense. So we expect this thing to probably, just like the 38, be up to 180 millimeters of travel. It's probably going to use their latest charger damper. We don't know how big the stanchion tubes are, but they look gigantic. Anybody else have any guesses? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of all we can see from the blurry photos that we're looking at on Instagram. But, you know, again, it kind of falls in the, the genre of bikes that we're starting to see emerge, just kind of even burlier, enduro, free ride things out there. So, time to hit some road gaps. It definitely seems like there's a a new category, a resurgence in the category of these, like, I people call it like super enduro or whatever. But, like, it definitely feels like 2008 all over again. Free where, ride didn't you know, die. We've no, got just took a know, nap. 30, 37 pound pedalable bikes with 180 mils travel. And I don't know, I just need to go and find some wheelie drops, some pedal kick wheelie drops. Ride along the top Skinny. of parking barriers and loading yeah. docks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got some stairs. Great old. Yeah. It's coming back. <laughs> Where's the Hammerschmidt? I'm waiting for the Hammerschmidt. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I still have yeah, to imagine somewhere. that Hammerschmidt. Hammerschmidt with Eagle, he'd have. 24 gears he's so good <laughs> hammer i felt like dan roberts had a snide comment that he refrained from making no i was just laughing at hammer schmeagle it's like some weird sort of fetish from lord of the rings i don't know i was like jesus yeah the hammer schmeagle <laughs> yeah, oh yeah lord of the fetish or lord of the rings sex fetish lord of the gears i'm sure that exists like i'm sure it does people guaranteed <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> I feel like okay. we've reached the logical conclusion of, <laughs> of our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. yeah. Everybody can go Google Lord of the Rings. Okay. So that's it for episode three of the Pig Bike podcast that was full of tech. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, much more important than new suspension forks and new shocks, is everybody's dogs and cats. We did a Pets of Pig Bike post, our virtual pond beaver trade show pet coverage. Everybody should go check it out and especially... Look at my dogs, Mishka and Sherpa and Habs. They're the best. 